Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 52 as we continue to work through the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 52. Lots of uh, new faces today, and so just, you know, why Isaiah 52? Well, we last week we were in Isaiah 51. We, we preach through books of the Bible here, and um, we just tend to go through them verse by verse because I think that's... Uh, Well, that's obviously how they were written. And so we want to see the word for, we want to see all of the word as well. And so that's why we're here. And in Sunday school, we've been going through the book of Ecclesiastes. And so we just go through it as well. That's just how we do things as a church. And for me, it's easiest. I never have to worry about what I'm going to preach next week. I'm going to preach the thing that was left off last week. So it's kind of nice. Just as a, just as some context as why we're in Isaiah 52. We've been in, in Isaiah for about the last We'll combine year and a half or so. So it's been a, it's been a good trip so far. So before we get into God's word, let's go to him again in prayer and ask for his help with it. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us with it. It is, it is plain. It is true and good in everything that it says. And we struggle even with the most plain things in it. And so, Lord, as we come together to open your word together this morning, we pray that you would be here with us, that you would teach us from it, that you would convict us of our sin, and that you would open our hearts, that we might learn from you, and we might be transformed in the renewing of our minds. pray this in your name. Amen. So as I read through this, there is this sense, and we've, it's been building over the last few weeks, of this of anticipation, right? Or Judah's getting ready to leave exile, and so there's this big anticipation building up. And it reminded me of a few nights ago for us and our family and for lots of families around town as there was the start of school for the Murray School District. And there was a lot of anticipation. You know, kids are ready to kind of get back to their normal school routine and uh, seeing their friends all the time as a teacher. And my, and my wife, also a teacher, we're kind of ready to also to get back to a normal routine, seeing kids grow and learn. It's very fulfilling work that we enjoy very much. This was the beginning of my 10th year at Murray High School, if you can believe that. And the night before school starts really hasn't changed at all for me in those 10 years. There's all this kind of anxiety and excitement all kind of rolled into one. And then the next morning, of course, everyone's up super early and ready to go like an hour before we even need to walk out the door and all sitting there staring at each other. But as the year drags on, of course, the wake-up time gets later and later. The anticipation sometimes turns to dread, and there's more of a desire for it to all be over than for it to continue. We all kind of understand how that works. In our text today, we have this kind of excitement. As the people of God await their departure from exile in the city of Babylon. Remember, Isaiah is prophesying here about these events many years before they occur, yet we can still feel this kind of anticipation as we read the text today. I think in many ways it mirrors our own waiting for the Lord to return today. Gives us a picture also of who we are in Jesus, kind of where we were in Him and what that looks like and where we are now 
in him. And that tension that's there, a lot of times I will refer to that as kind of the already not yet of our faith. These things have already happened, yet we haven't not yet seen them in their complete fulfillment. The nation of Israel had been through many trials in their days, as you read through the scripture, and they would go through many more before Jesus came. And today, the people of God, which includes us in this room, have been through various trials, both as a whole and each of us as individuals. It would be easy for us to forget who we are sometimes because of all the things that are going on. It can be easy to forget where we're going and this anticipation and this excitement really that we should all feel concerning the return of Jesus. And so as we study this text, we'll consider three main ideas from it. First, the former condition, next the current condition, and then lastly, the current mission. So with that, let's look together at today's text, Isaiah 52 Starting at verse 1, reading through verse 12, please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Isaiah 52, starting at verse 1. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion, put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city, for there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now, therefore, what I have here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away from nothing, their rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore, my people shall know my name. Therefore, in that day they shall know that it is I who speak, here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go out in flight, for the Lord will go before you, the Lord will or the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. And so just a little bit of context where we're at in this book. The last week we've had this kind of theme. You know, you see here at the, in verse 1 of 52 where it's, we're told to awake, awake. Well, we've seen this all throughout 51 as well. This call for God to awake first and then to fulfill his promises for us 
But then there was a call from God to us to awake in 51 and now in 52 that we need to remember that his promises are still true. And so today we're going to see this same kind of language and then added at the end of the command is depart, depart. And so in the text today, we'll be looking at and in, after the text today, next week and the following weeks, we're going to be looking at the last servant song. We, we went, we saw three of those already, which is very specifically details the life and the suffering of Jesus Christ our Lord. And so in our text today, we have this kind of building of God's promises coming to a kind of crescendo. And then we're going to see the picture of the one who will carry out those promises in the coming weeks. And so I strongly encourage you then to read the rest of 52, to be reading through 53, read through them over and over. It will be a helpful thing for you because we're going to spend several weeks in that section. But as we start today, we're going to see the command for us to awake and remember who we are. I think it's important for us to remember who we are, to see first who we were. And that brings us to the First point, the former condition. Look with me at verses 3 and 4 again. For thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing, and you shall be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord, my God went, or my people went down first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. So these verses make us think about the history of Israel, their time in Egypt, from the time of Joseph, Joseph from the time or from, to the time of Moses. It speaks also of the Assyrian siege that we looked at earlier in this book under the reign of Hezekiah. You can kind of think of those events as bookends, as it were, and in between those bookends, there's also a lot of difficulties. You know, you read through the book of Judges and they were harassed by all these local thugs, basically. Then you have kind of the reign of Saul and David where they were harassed by the armies of the Philistines. There was really never a time in Israel's history where they weren't under the threat of some other army. And this is coupled with the fact that there was this constant infighting as well. That they also struggled with and eventually led to the splitting of the kingdoms, right? You had Judah and Benjamin in the south, and then you had the other ten tribes in the north. And we've already seen those ten tribes be completely decimated by Assyria. And now Judah is in exile in Babylon. So everything's just kind of been unraveled. And now Judah is awaiting their release. And that's kind of the, the tension that we have here in these texts. So hear these words then, that they were sold for nothing. They were oppressed for nothing. And I'm sure if Israel were to dwell on their history too long, they may think then that they were worth nothing. They were supposed to be a kingdom of priests, a dwelling with God in the promised land forever and ever, yet because of their own sin, they were in exile. They were awaiting their Savior. And they've already been told about their Savior earlier in this book. It's going to be a man named Cyrus. And they didn't even know who that was. And he wasn't even going to be from Israel. But they were waiting on him nonetheless. And you see the result of this kind of tension 
in verse 5. Well, they do. Now, therefore, what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken from nothing? Well, their rulers wail, declares the Lord. And continually, all the day, my name is despised. The people wail. The name of the Lord is despised. There's a real sense in which we can all kind of relate with this. We also live in a time of history where we live in this kind of not yet time of history. We know the redemption that Christ has bought for us, right? We read here that we are redeemed without money. We have bought with the very blood of Jesus Christ. Yet we live in this kind of suspension, as it were. We've been called a kingdom of priests. First Peter calls us that, yet it definitely doesn't always feel like that's who we are. A royal priesthood, a chosen nation. It doesn't always feel that at all. And I think this tension has caused Christianity to continually, over the centuries, go off the rails. Because we know what the Bible says about us, right? We know what the Bible says that we have in Christ, yet we look at the world and we we don't see that we are experiencing those things now. We look at a world and it suggests that those things that the Bible says about us may not be true. The Bible tells me that I have infinite worth as one purchased with the very blood of the Son of God. Yet I feel, and we all feel many times, as one who was sold for nothing, kicked to the curb by a world that can't possibly understand us. And so what do we do then? In order to regain some of what we already have, in order to kind of grab a hold of the truth that's already real, we can't make it more true, but we try to, we have done many things in the church over the years. We borrow from the world when it comes to our own views of things like self-worth, which is really, really common today. We basically, you know, this idea of self-esteem basically equates to self-worship. And we're seeing the ends of that self-worship in our society today. We have all these things, and it's not new to our time. And it's, it's not, we're not pointing the finger at the world. We all experience these things, even as Christians, things like, Entitlement and grandiosity and unbridled pursuit of pleasure with the church not looking a whole lot different from the world many times. The Bible gives us quite a bit of truth about who we are. And when it does so, the focus isn't on us at all. And so many times we want to read this and see that the focus is on us. But when as we read it, we see that the focus is not on us at all, but instead it's on the one that purchased us without money. And this is the key. We're going to see this as we get to the next point. In order for us to have a right view of self, we have to stop focusing on ourselves so much and have a right view of God. Show me someone who suffers from something like depression or something along those lines, and I'll show you someone who's way too focused on themselves. And they haven't they don't have a right view of God. They don't have a biblical view of themselves. The world tells us that the answer is just more self-love. But scripture gives us much different instructions. 
points us to the one who has already done the work for us and is doing the work in us. And that point takes us to the next point, the current condition. So let's look back now at verses 1 and 2. Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall be no more come into you, the uncircumcised and the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. So whereas the last part we looked at was kind of this not yet, this anticipation of something that is but is not yet, now we see what has already been done for us, the things that we already have in Him. So again, for Israel and Babylon, imagine reading this. Imagine reading this, nearing the end of their 70 years of exile. Remember, they're going to be there for 70 years. There was this kind of excitement building, knowing that at the end of 70 years that they were going to have a Savior. There was this coming Savior that they were looking for this man named Cyrus that no one had ever met. And he was prophesied by a man named Isaiah that prophesied him 150 years previous. They were waiting anxiously for his coming, I'm sure. So notice how the Lord tells them to prepare. Put on your strength. Put on your beautiful garments. Loose the bonds from around your neck. Where did they get these things? Where did they get their strength and their beautiful garments? Where did they have their bonds broken so that they may now loose them? Who made it so that they could be called a holy city? So that they could now shake off the dust and arise? All of this presupposes the work of a Savior who now instructs them to act as if those things are true. Consider the life that we have in Christ today versus the life that we had as an unbeliever. In a passage that we're all familiar with here in Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 10, you've heard me quote this many times. What, is the, what does it tell us? Well, it tells us who we were before Christ, that we are not righteous because of our sin. We cannot understand. We cannot seek after God. We are not good. We have become altogether worthless. Yet in Jesus, what happens? Well, those things become untrue. We are counted as righteous because we have the righteousness of Christ. We can understand. We can seek after God because we are being transformed in the renewing of our mind. These things are good. We have been changed because of what he has done in us. We can do good works because he has prepared those things beforehand that we might walk in them. We are now so valuable that we read in Ephesians chapter 1 that God the Holy Spirit has been sent himself as a guarantee that he will keep the promises that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. So hearing about all the things that we have in Jesus, why would we ever want to tell anyone, ever, 
You just need to love yourself more. I mean, some have tried to Christianize this message, and I've seen this a lot. You know, we, we all know the second commandment, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so they've taken that and they've twisted it in a very worldly Christianization and saying, well, you can't love others until you love yourself. And they'll quote Jesus' second greatest commandment, right? Love your neighbor as yourself. And say, look, see, you can't love your neighbor until you love yourself. That's a 50-mile stretch right there. What was the first commandment? It seems like the second commandment would hinge upon the first, right? That we should love God. Well, how much of us? With all of our strength, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with every bit of who we are, then what can we do? Love our neighbor. We can't love our neighbor unless we love God first. Unless we see the promises that he has for us. He's the one who gives us strength. He's the one that gives us the beautiful garment. He's the one that broke the bonds. He's the one that sent his own son to redeem us without money. He redeemed us with his very blood. He gave his life. This is much different than a message that the world would offer. Because they can't even begin to understand the idea that Isaiah presents there in verse 3. That we would be redeemed without money. So what do they do? How is this trickled into the church? What do we do? Well, we attempt to buy our own righteousness through works that we deem that these are good things, right? Forgetting what the scripture tells us that God alone is good. Christians, when we buy into this message, we believe a lie. We exchange the true gospel for a false one. So what's the answer? Those of you who are in the church, the answer is again for us to repent of that. To turn to Jesus. He tells us here, awake. Awake. Put on the strength that God gives you. The robe of righteousness given by Christ. Loosen the bonds because you are no longer captive. You are free in Christ. And if you're here and you're an unbeliever this morning, maybe you're hearing this for the first time. This command is the same for you. Repent. Turn to Jesus. The world has absolutely nothing but wrong answers. Unfulfilled promises. If you're hearing this, you know that. You know that the world can't possibly offer you any kind of fulfillment. So we've been going through Ecclesiastes. We've seen that in spades. There's no fulfillment in the world. So rather than continually... To grab at the nothing that the world is giving you. Receive the prize that Jesus Christ bought without money. And he did so with his very life. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus today and be saved. Receive eternal life. But for those of us who are in Christ, we now are on this journey to his eternal kingdom. And we await his return. We await it with anticipation. So in the meantime... He has put us on mission. And that brings us to the third point, the current mission. Look with me at verses 6 through 8. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. 
How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy. For eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Again, think of that anticipation, waiting to hear the news, that the, that the, the wait is over, that the Savior has finally come, that they're going to be delivered from exile. The Lord's answer to them, wailing and despising his name, was to cause his people to know his name. And we quote from Ezekiel 36, we have it out there in the wall in our foyer, that he's going to replace our hearts of stone with a heart of flesh. He's going to put his spirit within us and cause us to walk in his ways. In that day, he says here, they shall know. That it is I who speak. And so we see this messenger coming over the mountain with the good news of deliverance. I mean, can you imagine this? They were all waiting for this, this Cyrus to come and save them. And now they see the messenger and he's running over the mountain and he's bringing the good news that their day of salvation has come. I mean, the closest things that I can remember, I just talked about a... A time of anticipation, right? Where we anticipate this big event, like maybe the first day of school or some other big event that you've had in your life. Maybe going on a vacation or like a wedding day or or having a child or any kind of big anticipation. You can't even sleep because you're so excited and the time even seems to just kind of slow down to a halt. Imagine being one of those in exile and seeing the messenger come. And yet while Isaiah is definitely talking about the coming of Cyrus, he's definitely also pointing forward to something that is way beyond that. The coming of the Lord. The return of the Lord to Zion, to his people. When Jesus was born, I mean, think about on the night that Jesus was born, think about how all this anticipation just manifested itself in just all this celebration. The angels couldn't even contain their excitement. They showed themselves in the skies, singing the coming of the Lord. Far off kings traveled many, many days to come and see him. John the Baptist, even while he was still in his mother's stomach, leapt for joy at the anticipation, the coming of the Lord. And here in Isaiah, we're given a response that we should have. When it comes to this salvation, verses 9 and 10, break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now, we have to be real careful here. Because it might be easy for us to kind of look inward and think, well, when I think about my own faith, I don't break out together in singing. I'm not excited about my faith anymore. For many Christians, I think, particularly those of us who have been a believer for a while, we might 
we might look back to when our, the way that our faith first was, right? And that the longing for the way that it used to be. We want to have the kind of passion that we used to have. We think maybe if we can just read the right book or practice the right spiritual discipline, we can return to the time when we felt this kind of exuberance, this emotional, wonderful feeling about our faith. Well, that's not what we're called to do here. We're called to simply recognize it's the Lord who's brought us salvation. To remember His promises. And if you've been a Christian for a long time, those promises haven't changed at all just because you don't get emotional about them anymore. I mean, I think about my own married life. And if you've been married for a while, you know that it would be impossible to sustain that kind of newlywed zeal that you had in those first few weeks of your marriage. It doesn't mean that you love your spouse less at all. Just because you feel different now than you did in year one doesn't mean that you love her or him less. In fact, it's probably much more rich and valuable to you now than it ever was. And so I encourage you, Christians who maybe struggle with that, doesn't mean that you don't love the Lord anymore. It just means that we have this different kind of love for Him today. Our relationship with the Lord exists independent about how we feel about Him from one day to the next. He's the one that keeps us, brothers and sisters. We don't keep Him. He holds on to us whether or not we hold on to Him. And that's, that's the promise that we have. Our mission also remains the same. Verse 11 and 12. Depart, depart. Go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. You shall not go out in haste. You shall not go out in flight. For the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. Notice how they are to depart Babylon. Isaiah is giving them this this message 150 years before they will actually do it remember but they are to depart babylon not in haste but with a more purposeful procession remaining holy even in the midst of a very very pagan city when israel left egypt remember back in the exodus it was much different for them they left in haste they were commanded to carry all the egyptian gold that they could possibly carry but here They are told to purify themselves of their pagan surrounding. Walk not in haste. And notice also, where's the Lord in relationship to them? Well, he goes before them and he is also their rear guard. This is a great picture of the walk that we have in Christ today. We continue our pilgrim journey through this foreign land. We are those who aren't to walk in haste. We're not in a hurry to get out. But that doesn't mean that we don't want to be with Him at all. But we're not in a hurry. And we don't have, we don't have to worry about that either because we know that we're protected on all sides. And while it's true that the world is not our home, it is also true that we have been called to be the bearers of good news today. We are called to publish peace to bring good news of happiness that will be for all the nations. 
We should bring this message to one another as well. Absolutely. What does it say? They shout to each other. Your God reigns. We need that reminder. But we should also go out to the ends of the earth. As the Lord bears his holy arm to the very ends of the earth. So that the nations will see and be glad. Are we doing this, brothers and sisters in Christ? Do we understand who we are in Christ to the point that we can share his message of of hope with the lost world? It's the hope that we have. We wear these beautiful robes of Christ. We put on the very strength of God. And so let us be a people who are that voice of salvation to a dying world. In conclusion, church, remember who you are in Christ. You were sold for nothing, but you were redeemed without money. You were redeemed with the very blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so let us live as if these promises to us are true. And let us be ones who take this beautiful message to a lost world. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, we, we pray that you would help us to remember We so easily forget the things that we have in you. We want to dwell on who we were rather than who we are. And so, Lord, help us to see who we are in you so that we might also help the world to see, to take the message of the gospel to a dying world so that you might be glorified. It's in your holy name we pray. Amen.